Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science, one of our final shows for the year. Just as usual, where too much science is never enough. Uh, on the show this week, I'm going to try and cover some of the hundreds of stories that we don't get to cover because we try our best to cover weird and unusual stories, but there's so much going on in science all the time, we don't quite manage to cover everything. So I'm going to mm. do a little bit of that. I'll leave that uh, till later in the show. Chris has brought in our friend George Aranda. Yes, George is a uh, host of the popular Science Book a Day website, um, or founder thereof. Uh, he is going to review us the top science books for 2015. Time to think about gifts for your scientifically ready, reading in, inclined people for Christmas. I imagine if you want to get or, into or Newtonmus, if you don't believe Newtonmus, if you don't believe in those things, um, we won't go into that because what Newton believed that would just blow your mind. <laughs> Claire, um, I'm actually going to be talking to Naomi Francis today about International Toilet Day, which was a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Put us all down the toilet. We are going to be talking about the importance of toilets. Cool. Well, stay tuned for all that and more on the show. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science, and this week we have with us George Aranda, sorry, Dr. George Aranda, uh, founder of the Science Book a Day website, uh, where he reviews, maybe not every day, but science books f- to fill your day. Welcome to Lost in Science, George. Good to be here. Thank you for having me again. Uh, now, it is it has been a while since we've had you in, and there have been many, many good science books released. So, um Looking back on 2015, do you have any particular favourites that uh, that people should be thinking about as they're looking for something to read over the coming break? Yeah, no, I'm always interested in what new books are coming out and about uh, and that sort of thing for the book, uh, the um, the actual website itself, as well as the sci- as the Big Ideas Book Club I run in the Melbourne CBD as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I brought three books that I have uh, featured on the website because I feature a book every day, even if I can't review okay, it every okay. day. Yeah. Um, and so three of the books I featured um, I thought were very interesting and kind of cutting edge in their own particular way. Um, the first one is Life on the Edge, the Coming of the the Coming of Age of Quantum Biology by Jim Alkalili and John Joe McFadden. One because I just love the name John Joe McFadden, um, but also because I think the actual um, the idea of quantum biology is really. Um, of of the moment, um, John Joe McFadden had been researching it for some time. And 10, 15 years ago, when he wrote his first book, Quantum Evolution, there wasn't really much research at that time that indicated that um, quantum mechanics had anything to do with biology. Um, but since then, more research has come about. And he wrote this book with um, popular um, science communicator in the UK, Jim Al-Khalili, uh, trying to really look at how quantum mechanics might be that link between the um, the non-livingness of mm-hmm. um, matter and how it can be that can be changed into matter so it's kind of, uh, can be um, changed into something that's alive and so they they use the book as a way to try and explore some of these processes and um, 
And so each chapter is about a particular aspect of biology that can be explained through um, uh, quantum biology, such as photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. um, they look at the idea of magnetoreception, which has been quite popular uh, um, in the last couple of years, looking at how birds can actually migrate using um, and are able to navigate using magnetic fields. Um, the idea that we can um, uh, really understand how a rose smells can be explained to some extent by quantum biology, as well as how um, genes are actually able to um, copy themselves with such great precision. So they introduce ideas to biology such as quantum tunneling, superposition, quantum entanglement, and that sort of thing. Okay, interesting. Hmm. Um, the second book, which I thought was quite interesting, is uh, Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made by Gaia Vince. Now, we were talking a bit about this before the show, and I think it's quite an interesting book, one, because it won the Royal, um, the Royal Society Book Prize this year. That's the, um, is that the prize for best science book in the world? Is that how it works? Arguably, yes. Right, okay. Yeah, and um, it was won by Gaia Vince, which was actually the first prize, uh, the first time the prize had been actually won by a woman. Wow. And I thought the book was actually quite interesting because um, for the last you know, 10 to 15 years, the books that have been written about climate change have largely been, been about does it exist? And I think we've reached the point where we can say, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. And it's due to um, what we do as humankind. And so Gaia was interested in actually following up on the stories of what people are doing around the world to try and actually come to terms with climate change. So we're talking adaptation? in this sense, adaptation to climate change? Uh, yeah, so things, what they're doing, strategies they're um, uh, enacting as opposed to evolutionary adaptation. Because okay. the term Anthropocene is um, that's basically, I, I've heard that quite a bit, saying that the um, we've entered a new era, um, geologically era effectively, of the Earth's history where it's controlled by human activities rather than natural forces. Yeah, and, and that's the idea that she's trying to explore in the book and what people are, are doing. At some levels, um, government, uh, uh, institutional or at a governmental level what is being done but she was actually more interested in the stories of what people are doing to try and overcome the changes that are going on in the world so she looked at um, a man who was making artificial glaciers in Nepal in order to irrigate, irrigate crops um, and also um, kind teaching themselves how to do these things by actually developing a network using Wi-Fi across the mountains in Nepal, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, there's a man who's painting mountains, um, with mountains white, with the idea of attracting greater snowfall in the mountainous areas. Um, oh, that's a lot of white paint. <laughs> there's also the idea um, that it's been successfully used in um, Bali to actually put an electrical current through reefs to actually help them grow. And this is being applied. This is being applied to the Maldives as well. Wow! Um, and there's also a man who's trying to make islands out of rubbish in the Caribbean. So lots of different ways that people are trying to adapt uh, to climate change. And the idea is to look at a bit of positivity, especially in times at a government level where we're not really doing very much at all because of climate change. Um, now, the third book that I thought would be interesting to look at is Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity by journalist Steve Silberman. Now, this is quite an interesting book. A similar, similar to um, Adventures in the Anthropocene, we have an idea that's been around for a while. So we've spent the last 10 to 15 years arguing that autism has been you know, created by vaccines and the use mm -hmm. of vaccines. And now we have a lot of research saying that's not the case. And so um, what Steve tried to do is actually go back into the history of autism, um, which has quite a unique history. The A lot of the ideas that we have about autism are due to Leo Kanner, who in 1943... Um, 
diagnosed or came up with the idea of autism. And he was really someone who felt that autism, you couldn't do anything about it, that people wouldn't be able to live productive lives. Whereas um, Hans Asperger worked in, uh, was a Viennese uh, scientist, a pediatrician. And he was someone who had looked at it in a much gentler kind of way. So he had looked at young boys who had um, difficulty making friends, who still had some ability to um, socialize through conversation, but he called them his little professors, because if you actually asked them about something they were interested in, they could tell you how much they knew and to a qu quite a significant degree. But the problem is that Asperger's work was largely ignored in the United States because it was in German in the first place, mm -hmm. so people hadn't heard about it. And by the time it was um, the, late eight, uh, the late 80s, his work was actually translated into English. Um, it, it created quite a different uh, attitude to autism and the Asperger's spectrum. Uh, sorry, to the to autism and Asperger's um, syndrome. And so in the 1990s, there was a, a change in the way people started to think about it and that's starting to come through in the way that we're thinking about autism and Asperger's syndrome. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so it's it provides us with a kind of a, um, a more holistic way of looking at um, autism. So it's not just something that you're sentenced with, but we're starting to come to terms that people in autism are in our everyday lives and we don't really need to think about think about the ideas that we're normal and they're not and promoting a neurodiversity um, perspective where we can accommodate a range of different um, cognitive styles that people have. Okay. That's actually, um, uh, I believe, something that's been applied to other areas of, of disability as well, the idea that it's some um, society that has to adjust rather than the people have to be cured or... Yeah, so yeah. it is, um, I think it's a more person-centric kind of way to look mm -hmm. at things rather than just saying this is your diagnosis and that's it. Um, yeah. And also accepting the um, the fact that all, all brains are different as mm. well. Yeah, very, very true. Okay. How are we doing for time, Mr. Mr. Eight minutes. Okay. Well, um, thank you very much for those those um, recommendations, George. Um, that is definitely something to look out for. Now, so we can find your uh, Science Book a Day at sciencebookaday.com. Is that correct? That's it. And how can people join your book club in Theron, Melbourne? Uh, if you're in Melbourne, you should find us on meetup.com. It's called Big Ideas Book Club. Excellent. Well, um, one to look out for. So thank you again, George. Thank you. And Merry Christmas. Today is Naomi Francis, PhD candidate at Melbourne University at the Nossel Institute for Global Health and all-round lover of the miracle that is the modern toilet or loo, crapper, whatever you want to call it. Welcome, Naomi. Thanks, Claire. Naomi, as the wonderful children's book tells us, everybody poops, right? Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, but what the kids' book fails to ask 
is why we need to do it in a toilet. Can you shed some light on this matter? That's a good question, Claire. Maybe I'll start with a question for you instead. Oh, oh, the tables have turned. The tables have turned. Um, well, where did you poo this morning? If in you pooed a, this morning, that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I pooed in my porcelain throne in my house. Excellent. Yeah. Well, the problem with poo is that it's full of bacteria and viruses. Yeah, uh, which can make you diseased. Yeah, yeah, and quite ill. And quite ill. And while that's – we don't have much of a problem in, in the industrialised developed world because we have toilets in places where, there, where lots of people don't have toilets, uh, the spread of diseases and viruses that lead to stuff like diarrhoea – are really common and as a consequence diarrhea is the second largest killer of kids under five and there's other con- consequences to not having toilets uh, that aren't just about the sort of microbial as- aspect of it. For women in particular not having a toilet uh, means that they're extra vulnerable when, when they're going out to the bush to defecate. Uh, they'll have to wait till it's dark, uh, that means they're yep. way more vulnerable to sexual violence. Um, it also means that, uh, say, places like schools and health health uh, centres, if they don't have toilets, uh, it deters people from from either from attending school or attending going. school. Yeah, of course, exactly. Yeah. yeah, especially for women in terms of <coughs> menstrual hygiene management, lots of women around the world miss lots of days of school for that reason. So our toilet is linked to our education. It's linked to our health. Yep. It's linked to our communities. It seems absolutely and uh, and really and intrinsically as well. Oh, really. Well, absolutely, because if people are getting sick, then they're not going to be at work. If their kids are sick, then oh, they're not going to be at work. Uh, and the amount of money we have to spend, or not us, but those people have to spend on on getting themselves better, medication, uh, that's yeah. a huge cost. Yeah. yeah, and also we talked about bacteria and viruses, but the spread of worms yeah. and the malnutrition yeah. of children, if they do have worms, they're not... Am I right in saying they're not absorbing nutrients? They're not absorbing nutrients? nutrients, yeah. So especially in young kids when that's really important because they're growing, obviously, at that point. Yeah. But the other thing is getting certain types of parasites at that age means that their intestines are, are damaged and right. it means that the absorption of nutrients later in life is also hindered. So, yeah, nutrition so is a big one. Nutrition is a big one and that's yeah. an ongoing thing. Yeah, Absolutely. Right, so I can see a lot of potential benefits to mankind for keeping our poop as far away from us as possible. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. Apart from the fact that it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of like nature's way of telling us, is to it? To not go anywhere to near it. To not go it. anywhere yeah. near it. Absolutely. That's really yeah. handy then. Yes, it is really handy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so most people in Australia uh, would be pooping in a toilet just like me this morning. That's right. But I'm interested, is pooping in a, to- in a toilet, is it a cultural phenomena? Is it is it something that we have to learn or is it a cultural practice? Are there ways to change it if, um, if people in other countries don't have the same cultural practice? It's absolutely a cultural phenomena. I mean, pooping in a toilet or having a toilet is not an innate natural thing. That's a, a cultural definitely a cultural thing um it's pretty universal that people are disgusted by poo mm. um, so people will will try not to do it near the place where they hang out so they yep. won't do, do it near the house if they can avoid it yep don't shit where you eat right exactly yeah yep. or anything else that's a universal truth that's a, yeah yeah yep. um well as far as we can know truths claire <laughs> 
<laughs> but definitely having a toilet is a cultural thing. Okay. And I think, yeah, when you when you grow up in a place that has toilets, it seems like a natural thing until you go to a place where there aren't any toilets and that's when where challenges arise because trying to get people to to defecate in one place is is quite difficult. What sort of research is WaterAid and the Nossal Institute doing in Timor around toilets? Yep, so it's actually part of a much bigger project. There's an NHMRC-funded project being run out of the Australian National University, uh, headed up by Archie Clements, and they're trying to uh, look at whether a community-based water sanitation and hygiene intervention, which is being done by... Water aid. Now, now, water sanitation hygiene also happens to be the best acronym of all time, right? Exactly, because it contracts to wash. Because it contracts to wash and it's yep. all about water Washing. Sa- <laughs> washing. Okay, sorry, I just had to yep, get that, that off my one. chest. Yep. <laughs> so, um, great, I can just say wash now. Yep, you can say wash now. So, yeah, this team run, running out of the ANU are looking at uh, whether a community-based wash program, which is being run by Water Aid in Timor, uh, means that people get lower reinfection rates of worms. And so it's quite it's an epidemiological study. And the research I'm doing through the nozzle is is attached to that project. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to look at what exactly it is that WaterAid are doing over there and what are some of the outcomes of their program, not in an epidemiological sense, but more in terms of how do people's knowledge attitudes and practices around sanitation and a little bit to do with hygiene and water. How do those things change over time as a result of the program that WaterAid are doing? That sounds like a huge project that ha- that you're going to have to continue on for a very long time. Is that right? Well, the particular technique that WaterAid use for sanitation, which is called community-led total sanitation, is widely understood to have really quick results. Ah. So it was yeah appropriate for me to be able to look at it within the three years of my PhD. Yeah. Yeah. The the bigger project run out of ANU is is quite a lot longer, but um, yeah, the bit that I'm looking at is, is much shorter. Yeah. So when you say quick results, what would you deem as quick and what yeah. results would you see within the community? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should explain what community-led total sanitation is. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. to start with. Um, so traditionally, people who have worked in this field have thought that the reasons people don't have toilets or the reasons why they're defecating in the open is because they can't afford toilets or they don't have access to materials Mm -hmm. or or maybe they don't know how to build a toilet or they don't know what a toilet is. And so the traditional approach has been just to go in and build toilets. Yeah. And anywhere in the world where this has been done, you can see abandoned, perfectly beautiful toilet blocks. Locked up probably. Either locked up um, or being used for something else. I've seen ones used as kitchens (sighs) because the toilet bowl looks – is a great place for making a fire and, you know, a a pot can sit quite nicely on top. Other places – sometimes that toilet block is is the driest place in the village so it's a good place to keep stuff like (laughs) cow pats dry because, you know, you need those for fuel. So there's all sorts of other reasons that people find. Yeah. Yeah. So this approach – Oh, it came out about 10 years ago in Bangladesh, uh, led by a guy called Kamal Khan. And the idea with the approach is that you you motivate people to build their own toilets or to stop open defecation through inspiring feelings of disgust uh, and shame around open defecation. So that question I asked you earlier about where you defecate is, is a classic CLTS technique. They sort of get the community together and 
get them to draw a big village map and then mark on the map where they pooed, how much they pooed, get them to talk about how much it smelled, maybe go round and have a look at a few of the sites where they've pooed that morning. So it's Sounds gross. It is gross. Yeah. And the idea is that people feel, feel gross, gross and therefore want, want to change their behaviour. Mm. And, and then can change their behaviour in the way that they want to. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, in its purest form, I guess, people will figure out a way to do that on their own. So using whatever toilet design they want, whatever materials they have, in practice it's a little bit different, but that's the idea. And the reason it's thought to be rapid is because that, that change is quite is if the technique works well and the facilitators run it well, then the change can be almost instant. People will start building toilets the next day. Um, yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. In theory, yes. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When it works. When it works, it's amazing. It yep. works amazingly. We cover a lot of science on our show every week, but obviously there are a bunch of things we miss out on, which I thought maybe I would see how much of that I could get covered. Now, can we start the, the timer now? Or you can, the you timer can, and the Benny Hill music, I think yeah, you need yeah. to Benny start. Hill music, really? Yeah. No, so I'm, I was just going to go, I went back to the start of the year and I went, wow, a lot of stuff has happened this year. So I'm going to go through some of it. And if you want to interject... Uh, you can give it a try, but okay. you'll have to catch my eye, okay. so I'll shut okay. up. All right. Um, so we'll go back to January 2015, and we'll just start. Uh, there was a study in January that showed that some proteins can assemble other proteins without DNA instructions, which is a big breakthrough in biology there. Hmm. Uh, they mapped the genome of the longest-lived mammal, which is the bowhead whale, lives for over 200 years. Oh. Uh, 2014 was declared the hottest year on record by the Japanese Meteorological Agency. Uh, an earthquake in Ohio from 2014 was shown to have been caused by fracking. I think we did cover that we one. We did cover that yeah, one. I just thought one, yeah. I'd throw that oh. in there again because that, that's something that keeps coming up in Australia mm-hmm. as well. Um, a compound is developed that tricks mice metabolism into burning fat, makes them think they've just eaten so that they start breaking down fat so they can eat more food. Um, New Zealand researchers observe mitochondrial DNA moving between mouse cells and triggering cancer in adjacent cells. All right. Uh, which was a pretty uh, unusual thing that they, they'd suspected but had never observed They'd before. never seen mitochondria doing that before? No. Um, a neutron star was observed slipping out of view due to space-time warping, and they think it's re- due to reappear, visible from Earth, in 160 years' time. Where'd it go? It, it's still in the same place. You just can't see it because the space-time around it has been warped. Okay. Watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> uh, Iranian and Argentinian researchers made a biosensor using graphene sheets. Uh, that was, you know, the first time that's ever been done. Duke University announces for the first time that lab-grown contracting human muscle tissue 
has been uh, achieved for the first time. So they've actually got muscles contracting in a petri dish. So you know how they were trying to make those um those hamburgers grown in a petri dish. Mm. Yeah. If they made human muscle cells in a petri dish and you ate that, would you be a cannibal? Yes. Really? It's, it's, it's human simply. tissue. Technically, you would be a you cannibal. Would t- yeah, yeah, technically, you'd okay. be. Okay. Now, if you ate human-flavoured to. tofu, <laughs> would you be a cannibal or just not really? <laughs> they did. That was on the market for a while back there. Um, astronomers theorise the existence of two Earth-sized objects at the edge of the solar system, which we can't see. I think that was a controversial call, that one. Yeah, that, that, one, that one may have not been... Yeah. Uh, that was based on just observations of other yeah. planetary movements, so not sure exactly what's causing that, but that was a theory that, that was uh, published in January. Uh, scientists mapped a roundworm brain and used the map to program a Lego robot, which can now seek food... For no apparent reason. Does and the Lego avoid robot obstacles. go into your digestive system? No, no, no. It's, it's a much larger. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like, it's, it's like it's standing like on a Lego. On Lego. But no, but much way, worse. way worse. Yeah. Um, no, but yeah, what, what, what is the point in a Lego robot seeking food? I'm not entirely sure, but it's capable of. What do they eat? Um, other bits of plastic, <laughs> fluff, <laughs> dust from the carpet. Um, so scientists also effectively slowed down the speed of light by changing the shape of photons. I'm not exactly sure how that worked, but they reckon that they slowed down uh, light by passing it through a, uh, a mask that changed the shape of photons and made it move slower. Hmm. Um, a new owl species was described in the Middle East. You would think there was not a lot of uh, new flora or fauna to be found in the Middle Who East. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? But they described a new species of owl called the Tawny Desert Owl. Uh, and also, chemists described the re- the reaction of alkali metals with water. When you drop alkali metals into water, they yep, create okay. an explosive. Yep, huge. Uh, we didn't actually understand how that worked. Oh, cool. They I'm thought really... it was they thought it was hydrogen being released from the water yep. and exploding. No, it's not. It's actually a different reaction going on with the oh. uh, with the with the metals. The only thing I knew about that is you teacher told you not to do it. Don't yeah, do it. Yeah, don't, don't do, do it, it. Which yeah. made you really, really want to do it back in yeah. chemistry class. Yeah. Um, so that's the end of, that's the, the stories that jumped out at me from January. February, the British government was the first government in the world that allowed babies to be created from three adult partners. Uh, later on that year, later on this year, that was shown not to be necessary. They could use a different treatment to, um, to overcome mitochondrial diseases. That was, that was the purpose of doing that was that. the purpose um not just to see if they could but not just to see if they could right. but actually to get to get around uh, inherited mitochondrial diseases yeah uh researchers used biodegradable nanoparticles to kill brain cancer cells in animals and prolong their lives mm-hmm. uh single atom thick transistors made of silicine which is a form of silicon were constructed pretty impressive mm-hmm. uh the birth date of the first stars was revised to 560 million years after the big bang which is 120 million years later than was originally thought oh, okay um uh isopropanol fuel is extracted from gm bacteria which has the same uh efficiency as photosynthesis for taking energy from the sun and turning it into chemical energy that was the first uh back in february uh, NASA launched a deep space observatory to give early warnings of solar flares, which would be very useful if ever there's a solar flare heading our way, because most of our electronics would get knocked out by something like that. What if the satellite gets knocked out? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll know. know. Yeah, we'll yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, a canary. There was, there was a mouse study showing uh, e-cigarettes have most of the same health effects as tobacco smoking, so oh. useful information there. 
Um, psychosis risk is three times higher for users of potent cannabis strains, according to King's College London research. Uh, scientists drafted a document urging widespread and wide-ranging discussion before we attempt to communicate with any alien species we may suspect exist in the universe. They were just a bit worried that um, we might attract attention to ourselves that would be unwanted. Was that so, an international decision? It was in, Well, it was a whole bunch of scientists signed, signed a draft, <laughs> including <laughs> Elon Musk. And, of and Hawking, I think. Of course, Elon yeah. Musk was Who, should, should, they mean, should we do that now? Or when, when they get a message, then we have a discussion? Well, we should have a discussion before, before we send any specific messages to anyone. Mm. A bit late. It might be a bit late, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the Mars One project selected a final 100 candidates for their one-way proposed mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, a gene re- regulator called HAIR5, that's H-A-R-E, which has got actually nothing to do with hairs at all like the animal hairs it's just that's the code for the for the gene regulator is shown to make human brains larger so it can actually figure out who you can predict potentially who's going to have a larger brain and who's uh, not uh, a drug resistant malaria strain was identified on the pakistan indian border in february which is a bit of a worry because malaria is still a huge killer mm-hmm. around the world and so, we are just now developing effective drugs yeah, yeah. Dr- so a drug resistant strain is not really uh, good news uh, but in in, other, in good news, uh, the number of giant wild uh, wild giant pandas has increased seventeen percent in the last ten years, according to uh, Chinese researchers. Oh, that's good. So they've actually helped. any reason? Do they know what they're doing? Right? Well, they're they yeah they're protecting habitat and uh, that's you know, great news. Having captive breeding programs and releasing them into the wild. Um, so March. Scientists capture an image showing light as both a particle and a wave. You might have seen mm, that, that picture and very been very, very confused by it, mm. by what it actually meant. But, uh, yeah, light is, an Im- is a particle and a wave at the same time. Uh, some researchers formed organic compounds in the same conditions as outer space using chemicals that they've commonly found in space. So they think they can make DNA and RNA using just chemicals that happen to be floating around in space, which is uh, an interesting... Um, development on the origin of life long way to go to get those things well that they, they, you know comets may have brought them to earth oh, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they formed on the way down potentially yeah. uh a 2.8 million year old jawbone puts the earliest human ancestor 400,000 years earlier than previously thought when you say earliest human ancestor of uh in, in the species? genus homo so right. actually related to human beings now but uh yeah in the same genus are we counting homo nadelli in this well that's that's Nileni. more recent than 2.8 million years but okay. yeah, yeah possibly um, the Dawn spacecraft, Dawn spacecraft went into orbit around Ceres, which is the first dwarf planet ever visited by a human-built spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, a 30-year-long study of the Amazon jungle revealed it's slowly losing its ability to sequester carbon because trees are dying and it's going to become a net carbon carbon emission emitter yeah. due to the burning. Yeah. Yes. Um, Woolly mammoth DNA was successfully spliced with elephant DNA and shown to be functional when it was spliced, so they can right. potentially grow some sort of hybrid elephant woolly mammoth. Elephant park, just like Jurassic Park. Paleozoic park, park yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no, Ella mammoth. They could have. An Ella mammoth. An Ella mammoth. A woolly elephant. Mammophant. A mammophant. Mammophant. Sounds like a Jushi Melbourne restaurant. And in in the meantime, the uh, so they've spliced woolly mammoth DNA, but they've also reduced the potential um, habitat for such creatures 
the Arctic sea ice reached its lowest level, uh, lowest recorded extent, mm-hmm. according to US data, and the highest ever recorded temperature was uh, recorded in Antarctica, which was 17.5 degrees Celsius. It's pretty warm for Antarctica. That is, that's very balmy. warm for Antarctica. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, sea ice melting and high temperatures in Antarctica, both recorded in March of 2015. That's opposite ends of the Earth, aren't they, really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm, but similar conditions. Um, yeah, so there's some stories that we, some we didn't cover and some we briefly touched on. Um, but, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't catch up with in 2015, and I will put links to all of those on yeah. our podcast. So many questions, Stu, but thank you for reading all those papers for us. No worries at all. Just about wraps it up for this week on Lost in Science. We've heard of some great potential gift ideas from George. Thanks for coming in, George. You're very welcome. And we've also heard a lot of crap about toilets from Claire. <laughs> hey, it's, it's it's interesting and it's very important and um, got some runs on the board. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Claire's certainly sitting on the throne. I think of the story. <laughs> you can try all you like to paper over the cracks in that story, but <laughs> thanks for joining us. If you'd like to know anything more about any of the stories, several dozen of them that we covered quickly this week, um, please get in touch with us. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter and on Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. As I said, you can get in touch with us all those other means or you can just tune in again next week when, once again, all of the team come together and get Lost Lost in Science!
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.